Welcome to the Get Over Yourself podcast. This is Brad Kearns. Um, people have different needs, right? You know, there's like a hierarchy of needs, but I think that for many people, and certainly for me, mastery is a need. The journey, like the journey of getting better at something, is very important. You might actually. Um, produce the best outcome if you're cycling periods of growth and autophagy, periods of anabolism and catabolism. And that is kind of my latest thinking on this topic. Hi, listeners. I'm so excited to introduce my wonderful show with Dr. Peter Atia. What a privilege it was to visit him at his home in San Diego and get into it with one of the world's leading longevity physicians, an expert on the ketogenic diet, an ultra-endurance athlete who's performed amazing feats like swimming from Catalina to Los Angeles 21-mile endurance swim. He's known as a big-time self-experimenter. Everything chronicled beautifully in the name of forwarding science, doing intensive dietary modification experiments and proving the amazing adaptations the body can make when it becomes fat-adapted. And now his A-game is all organized at peteratiamd.com. So go there, sign up for the newsletter, subscribe to his new podcast. He started in the summer of 2018. It's called The Drive, a fantastic show. The title has disparate meanings because he likes to race automobiles. And he's also a driven guy, man. You're not going to find too many people that go as hard as this guy in all directions. As he describes on his Twitter comment biography, he's a man obsessed with living a passionate and intense life and detailing all his passions, especially in the medical and the scientific realm. And of course, his passions for peak athletic performance, his auto racing, his archery, his endurance feats, his extreme self-experimentation, and also uh, trying to be a super dad to kids 10, 4, and 1. Yes, Peter is for sure a chingon. That's a Spanish word that translates into a badass. <laughs> and I'm dropping Spanish here appropriately because the night before the show, I returned from Mexico, vacation in Mexico. Felt great, had a nice workout in the morning, cruised down the coast of Southern Cal to San Diego, and everything was going well until the last couple minutes of the interview, right before we were about to finish. All of a sudden, I got sweaty and dizzy and had to pass out on the guy's couch in his guest house. Oh my gosh, what an epic fail for a podcast. Here he is turning from podcast guest into doctor. His wife walks in, who I've never met. She's a nurse practitioner. So I had these medical professionals checking me out, giving me a glass of water, telling me to settle down. I felt better and rallied for a nice little finish to the podcast. And we had an epic cameo by his daughter, who also helped launch his podcast with the very first show. You got to listen to her on there and you got to listen to the whole thing on this show. Anyway, my favorite thing about Peter is he lives his life with tremendous passion and intensity, and I feel like this is an attribute that's sorely missing these days as we get into society that's ever more affluent and comfortable and addicted to screen entertainment and generally becoming more lazy in many ways. And you will pick up on Peter's passion and intensity for sure, when we go on a little tangent in the show, and he goes off on the topic of motorists scaring bike riders out on the road. He's a road cyclist. He lost a friend to a car accident, so obviously this issue 
touches a nerve. Uh, I also, when I arrived to his home, he was going off on a phone call, dropping the F-bomb here and there and just hitting it hard. And he later explained he was talking to uh, his close associate, his lead researcher, Bob Kaplan, and he explained how these guys like uh, venting to each other once in a while. It's a productive element of their passion and intensity for fighting that epic battle of trying to challenge this flawed conventional wisdom that we've had about diet for so long. And I want you to go over and watch his amazing TED Med talk. You can find that in the show notes or Google it, where he kind of breaks down at the end. It was a very touching uh, presentation. Half a million people have seen it. You got to add yourself to that list where he apologizes in absentia to a uh, old patient that he had to treat for diabetes. And he reveals to the TED audience that he privately held this patient in contempt for undisciplined lifestyle habits and proceeds to explain in the course of his presentation that we perhaps have the notion of diabetes, obesity, all wrong. As Gary Taubes wrote in his book, Why We Get Fat, quote, obesity and sloth are not causes of obesity, they're symptoms. Uh, if you're not following, I describe it further in the show notes, and it's a really important concept to understand. So he kind of got into this uh, direction when um, he was an athlete, uh, what, over a decade ago, and was training for hours per day, every single day, training for his marathon swimming efforts, and noticing that he was adding excess body fat, and then came up diagnosed as pre-diabetic, despite this incredibly athletic lifestyle. And if you're a physician, and you have this mind-bending, eye-opening, personal experience with disease diagnosis that you can't even believe could be possible with all that exercise, but granted it was a carb addicted lifestyle pattern because he was fueling these efforts with bombs of sugar, that sent him on the path to his life obsession, his calling now, where he's trying to attack disease, the epidemic disease patterns from the cause rather than a flawed uh, and dated conventional wisdom understanding of the calories in, calories out model or that if you're uh, overweight, you need to stop eating so much and get your lazy ass off the couch. It's literally being proven untrue very quickly by the leaders in the field like Peter. So we go off on a rambling road on this show, as promised to the Get Over Yourself podcast mission. You're going to hear him talk about some stuff that might not come out on as many other shows that you can find on the internet and all the great work that he's doing on the Drive podcast. So we get that tangent of the road rage idiots. We talk about his important concept of insulin area under the curve as perhaps his favorite longevity marker. We even get into the science and the genetics of peak athletic performance. Little cameos for Michael Phelps, Usain Bolt, Tour de France champ Chris Froome. And then we'll have that imperceptible detour near the finish because my wonderful audio engineer Brian will fix that and patch in the new conclusion after I'm up off the couch. Maybe he will mess with me a little bit and play some of that recording. I'm feeling really dizzy right now. Fun times with Dr. Peter Atia. I hope you enjoy the show. Sorry for the lengthy introduction, but Peter warrants it. I want you to understand where this guy's coming from and really enjoy it to the fullest. Thank you. Here we go. Peter, thanks for having me. You're, you're pumped up, I can tell. <laughs> and I, I like that about you, man. You got you to gotta go hard in life, huh? <laughs> I think so. So tell me about this drive. It's so exciting. You, you started a podcast. 
Yep. Um, started it uh, as far as recording them about uh, two months ago, and they yeah, started we're trickling summer out. of eighteen here. Yeah, the, the year of the podcast. Right. Right. Yeah, <laughs> the year of the new podcast. Oh yeah, I'm sure the, the world needs another one. I'm I'm guessing. Um, yeah, so it'll be a six month experiment. So they'll run for from July to December, and then we'll make a decision about whether it's worth doing. That's what Tim Ferriss said after his first five shows. His famous his famous experiment, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that worked out well. What's your ambition for it? I mean, you're you got a story to tell. We know that. Yeah, I mean, I think everybody has a story to tell. That's probably not reason enough. I think uh, for me, it's I mean. It's very clearly a number of things, but the most important is it's got to be able to generate revenue to offset the cost of some of the research we do, which is, you know, kind of the most interesting part of my job is is uh, trying to do this stuff. And um, I, I think for the last three years, we've been basically siphoning revenue off the patient side, which is like sort of what you do for a living is you know take care of patients, but we keep siphoning revenue off that stream to fund knowledge. And uh, I think the internal appetite for knowledge just keeps going up, but faster than I would want to be taking more patients in the practice. So, and also, I always think the taking from your left hand to give to your right hand is not a long-term solution. So, I'm trying to figure out how do you could you could you produce revenue out of a podcast that uh, that then is in service of kind of the knowledge creation we want to do. Yes, if you want to donate to Peter's podcast, go to Peter TRMD and you're in. No, we do don't. The, we don't have anything the, set the up. Patreon, yet. The Patreon, ten dollars a month. It's All a cup right. of coffee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We haven't we haven't figured out if that makes sense yet. Actually, I mean, I think there's that's, and I'm not in a rush to figure that out because there are some people who have done it really well through Patreon or through other donation services, and and obviously the tried and true way to do it is through ads. But each of those has huge issues, right? And so you know, we just don't know which one's going to be right for us and for the people who listen to our podcast. So tell me about this research team. You have quite a few people digging in and, and uh, evaluating all the stuff that's hitting them every day. How does that work? Yeah, so um, Bob Kaplan, who's the head of that, is the guy that I was just arguing with on the phone. But So you got a sense of like how passionate, like, it, like I mean, but that's Bob, right? I wasn't like I, sure I was at your house, and then I was on the, the, the road <laughs> up 80 meters down, and I heard your voice, so I was like, oh, okay, I'm here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You'd hear me and... And Bob going at it. But that's sort of like, that's the way it is, right? It's like, you you know, we're arguing about something very passionately and it's like, no, this is complete bullshit. And no, 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 this is the way it's got to be. Blah, 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 and we go back and forth. So uh, over time, we've just been growing that analytical team and um, in part working on projects that we deem internally interesting and relevant for our own knowledge that eventually becomes relevant to the patients. And sometimes, probably a quarter or a third of the time, it's, Patients ask us questions that we don't know the answers to, and we think, huh, we really should know that. Like, you know, you know, just yesterday a patient asked me about a supplement that apparently reduces homocysteine when methylated B vitamins don't. And so I was like, great, I've actually never even heard of this thing. So maybe it's nonsense. It probably is nonsense, but we should know. Right, right. So uh, the, the practice, tell me about that. You're, you're like splitting your time between here in San Diego and New York and you're taking care of, is this like a concierge service for patients interested in your particular, your particular uh, approach? So it's not a concierge practice um, because concierge practices focus on access and availability and stuff like that. So you know, concierge is sort of a service that fits within primary care. Um, this is not that at all. Uh, and I don't, 
I'm not a primary care physician. I, um, I don't displace the patient's primary care physician. It's, um, the practice is basically um, a way to help um, implement a model that we have into a patient's own framework of, you know, their incoming, you know, health status, their genetic and epigenetic predispositions, and their uh, their own appetite for risk or their desires for lifespan and health span. So how does it differ from going to your primary care doctor or going to your GI specialist if you have an issue or going through the, the traditional medical environment? I mean, it differs so greatly that I don't, <laughs> we would take the next hour to try to explain that. So you're working with a small number of people. Yeah, I mean, I mean, maybe conceptually the biggest difference is that it's, uh, it's proactive, right? So it's not, most of the medical system is kind of reactive. You, you know, you go to that GI person most of the time when something's wrong. Occasionally you go there for a reason that is proactive. Like if you're having a screening colonoscopy or something, that would be you showing up for something proactive. But for the most part, people are going to their doctors um, to address issues and, uh, of course, the question is twofold. What can you do if you don't have to wait until there's an issue there or if you can see earlier warning signs? Uh, but more importantly, I think it's how do you take a strategy that we have, a, a framework maybe is a better way to describe it, for longevity and then apply that to an individual. Right. So I love you talking about the, the big three uh, diseases that you want to avoid and how to do it, and, and you call it low-hanging fruit or the non-sexy approach of just getting the crap out of your diet. Can we cover those for the, the, the basic listener? And I, I think the niche I'm going for here is like, you know, here's my buddies that I grew up with, right? We're all over 50 now. We still think we're jocks. We're trying to stay healthy and not just wind things down. Um, but there's that, there's that super enthusiast that's signed up with you or willing to do the implant into the abdomen to look at your glucose or, or go keto and, and strictly adhere to this crazy diet. But I think there's a big group of people that'll, they'll do what you say. They'll do what you suggest if it's reasonable. They don't need to know the intense scientific rationale. Uh, but how do we lay that out for what, what are we trying to avoid mostly and how, how to do it? So I want to make sure I understand your question. Are you saying what are the disease states we're trying to avoid or what are the things that one does to try to delay the onset of those diseases. Yeah, you're talking about heart disease, uh, cancer, and neurodegenerative disease, right? <clears throat> yeah, So, and I wouldn't argue that those are low-hanging fruit, but maybe I misunderstood yeah, what the, you were saying. Yeah, the approach, like ha- those yeah. are the things that are killing most of, most of Western citizens, yeah. right? What did we, we just grab their 75% or some crazy number? Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, I think there's almost no way that you wouldn't as an individual, improve your health if you, uh, I mean, again, I'm going to speak in very broad and general terms, if you didn't sort of improve nutrition, exercise, sleep, those three things would probably have the biggest impact on your physical health. And it's, it's hard to say that somebody who's, you know, achieving 80% of their potential on each of those three um, isn't also achieving about you know eighty percent of their longevity potential. Hmm. Now, you know the difference between the eighty percent and the hundred percent in terms of effort is significant. It is not a non-linear effort curve, um, nor is it a um, a linear <clears throat> um, curve of of um, you know achieving a benefit. But um, 
a lot of this stuff you don't need a doctor for. I mean, sometimes a doctor is helpful to measure things, but for the most part, um, I, I think there's enough information out there for people to you know, have a sense of what they should and shouldn't eat. And I think people tend to get confused about things that don't matter. So there's such an amazing, you know, you, I'm sure you're more familiar with this than me, but I, I try to not think about this stuff, but you know, endless confusion about, oh my God, should I be eating a plant-based diet or should I be eating a paleo diet or should I be on a low-carb diet or should I be on a this diet or that diet? I mean, we could talk about those things all day long, but it might be more interesting to look at what do all of those things have in common if they're being done correctly. And that's probably the element that one ought to think most about. So as silly as it sounds, just to say like, what if I had a zero junk food diet or a diet of don't eat anything that my great grandmother couldn't have eaten? I mean, something as simple as that, right? Which Number is, one bestseller right there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not the book I'd write. Um, but something as simple as that would basically take virtually all sugar, refined carbohydrates, processed hydrogenated oils and all the other bullshit that's, you know, highly permeant within our um, food system and just take it away. Done. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, you could vacillate on whether you should have grass-fed beef or non-grass-fed beef or no beef at all or this type of egg or that type of egg or dairy or no dairy. I mean, those things are important to be sure, but they also probably on some level have uh, different individual outcomes. But if you got rid of sugar, if you got rid of refined carbohydrates, if you got rid of hydrogenated oils and the products that they show up in, because you don't buy those things off the shelf, right? <laughs> it's not like, I want some sugar. Let me go to the shelf and get it. No, it's get rid of everything that those things exist in. Um, and again, like this has been codified for decades. Like this isn't, this isn't like some new insight. The insight is the importance of this. Mm. I think the insight is... If you do this for long enough, it matters. Yeah, I get the comment when, I, when I'm going off and, and people are teeing me up at a, at a gathering or something and I'm, I'm, I'm giving my, my pitch about healthy eating and the ancestral movement, um, you, you get the comeback, hey, everything in moderation, and what about that? And I, I kind of recoil at that because I feel like our offerings are so disastrously, you know, extremely unhealthy that that moderation approach is probably going to get you uh, into a, a hospital bracelet at some point. Well, I mean, I think it depends on what we're talking about. I, I, I'm, you know, personally not a huge fan of moderation, but obviously <laughs> there are some things where I think moderation matters. But so, 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 yeah, there is truth to it, but you have to put it in context. Is smoking in moderation good or bad? Well, it depends what you're comparing it to. Smoking in moderation is significantly better than smoking in excess. But smoking in moderation is not better than not smoking. Now, with smoking, it's um, probably more um, direct, the relationship between the behavior and the outcome, the disease. There are fewer buffers in the system. So I, I don't, I don't, I don't want to get too geeky on like the engineering description of capacitance, but... With, with smoking, you know, probably even smoking five or ten cigarettes a day can be quite harmful over a long enough period of time. Whereas, you know, eating five to ten grams of sugar a day is probably not particularly harmful over a long period of time. So you have dose compression on the cigarette and you don't have that same dose compression in food. But I think the principle still applies. 
The only reason to embrace moderation within nutrition when it comes to the bad actors is if it's the only way that you can maintain sanity. Mm. But, but from a health perspective, that doesn't make any sense. In other words, from a purely biochemical perspective, it's irrelevant to, or, or it's illogical to say that, you know, an approach of moderation is the ideal approach. No, the, 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 if you're talking about this purely unemotionally and biochemically, it's consume the absolute best nutrition every minute of every day that you can consume it. In other words, you don't, there's no benefit to diluting it. It's, it's like saying, you know, well, you know, having a couple drinks a day is okay. No, it's, it's important to say having a couple drinks a day for most people is probably not outright unbelievably harmful, but it's by no means adding value physiologically. Right. So I suppose if we just take that, that basic step and cut out the processed foods, we're going to hit that 80% figure that you're talking about? I think for most people, yes. It also depends on where you're starting from. So that is, is, is not necessarily sufficient for somebody who's already quite far down the, down the line. So, you know, people who, for example, have type 2 diabetes or people who have non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which are two conditions that are um, more prevalent than people realize and even more prevalent than probably the CDC realizes, um, you know, for those people, I'm not convinced that an 80-20 approach is a great starting point. It might be a great long-term point, but they probably need to be a little bit more dramatic, especially with type 2 diabetes. With, with NAFLD, probably just a strict attention to fructose elimination, mm-hmm. even without carbohydrate elimination, is probably going to produce the best outcome. But with type 2 diabetes, you really do need to deplete the body of glycogen. You know, until until the body gets drained of you know fifty percent of its glycogen consistently, which is the easiest way to do that is you know through exercise and um, a significant restriction of carbohydrates. Um, it's very hard to begin to reverse the insulin resistance. So depleting your your full max out glycogen stores all the time. Um, we athletes have been told in the endurance scene, you, you do your workout and you replenish glycogen because you want to have those tanks full at all times, especially before the race. So are you saying, I've always wondered this, like if you go keto and you lose 12 pounds in the first eight days, I, that, that's uh, water retention and, and depleting your glycogen. And are you going to exist in a state where you're not, your, your stores are not full because you've restricted carbs so much? Or you're, on the other example, you're training all the time? Well, first of all, I don't think anybody ever depletes glycogen stores fully. That's a bit of a misnomer. So even somebody... Oh, yeah. Tim Noakes said that. You, you think you hit the wall, but you didn't hit the wall. You have whatever left over as the central governor theory when you're running the marathon. Yeah, yeah. You, you, can, you can take somebody who's think that they've hit the wall and you can inject them with glycogen and you'll get a huge spike of glucose. So you, you never run out of glucose. Um, the, the question is really, I mean, when it comes to carbohydrate restriction and glycogen, it's a question of how much do you need to dip into that? So as an overly crude example, it's like, are you better off having a gas tank that has 100 gallons in it for which you need to draw two gallons per minute? Or are you better off having a gas tank that can only hold 50 gallons for which you draw, which you only need to draw for the same output 0.5 gallons per minute? I'll do the math for the listener. You will get twice as far in the second scenario, though the tank is only half as full. And the reason that in the case of the second tank, in this analogy, of course, the 
gasoline or the fuel represents the glycogen. Um, in the second case, it's presumably because you're able to access a different fuel store, fatty acid, um, at a much higher rate than you were in the first case. And so your energy needs are met using a fuel that you have a much larger storage capacity for. So we're walking around with a half glycogen tank then if you're a long-term carbohydrate. Yeah, and it's probably either. not even that. I mean, I think the, mm. the research of, of uh, Jeff Olick and Steve Finney, who um, did biopsies, uh, muscle biopsies on, on carbohydrate-restricted athletes, it's probably about two-thirds. Uh, it's probably about a third depleted at steady state, all things equal. Um, again, I think the bigger issues that people have um, adapting to intense exercise during carbohydrate restriction, during initial forays into carbohydrate restriction, has less to do with glycogen and more to do with managing the water and the electrolytes. Oh, wow. So you're, you're low sodium because you changed your diet. Yeah, it's the sodium, the magnesium, and the plasma volume that's probably the, the, the hardest part initially to adapt to. Um, I remember bombing out my first foray into ketosis after three weeks, and I blamed it on the, the extreme nature of the diet. And now I'm, I'm coming to learn in my second successful route where I was pretty strict for five months, it, it was no problem. But um, getting those electrolytes and those background things handled is, is a big deal. And I suppose there is that competition for energy at the start that Finney and Volick talk about where you're, you, you need to ramp up your fat adaptation mm-hmm. and your muscles are going for energy and your brain and then you're going to have afternoon blues and a subpar workout yeah and for me also just difficult sleep initially really yeah yeah it's it's it's, it's not a i mean if anything it's motivation to not go in and out of it too much because the um the coming back into it like this week is my first week back in ketosis for years actually uh-huh. um and I've had some really pretty not impressive workouts. So uh, you did that three-year stint, that, mm-hmm. that crazy strict stint where you had the, the glucose meter and were monitoring all the blood levels without, without interruption for a long period of time. Then you kind of transitioned out of that. I heard you say that your, your life got too busy was one of the main factors. You just kind of got, got sick of the regimentation or it wasn't sustainable because of all your travel or something. Well, and also I think just, you know, I wanted to... It start, it's a slippery slope, right? Mostly when I left ketosis, it was that I wanted to eat more um, stir fry and more vegetables and things like that. It wasn't that I was sort of wanting to go back to bread and rice and potatoes oh. or, or sugary stuff. Um, Are and you then, saying that it necessitates you you're watching your vegetable portions as well uh, due to your blood values? Are you, are you asserting yeah, that? Yeah, certainly I could not eat my sort of favorite curry stir fry and stay in ketosis. There were, but again, you have to understand I eat silly amounts of food. So, um, yeah, I would easily eat, I could easily eat 200 grams worth of carbohydrate in a big stir fry. And, and certainly a lot of that is soluble and insoluble fiber, which probably doesn't negatively impact ketosis, but there's enough glucose in the volumes that I was wanting to eat. Um, that that was, that that was going to take me out of ketosis. Um, but, and then, of course, once I started intermittent fasting, that became a way to more easily allow me to tolerate other, you know, straight up carbohydrates, starchy carbohydrates quite easily. Because at least for me, eating them in a very narrow window and being thoughtful about when I ate them seemed to not have terrible effects on me. 
Is this a once a day window where you're waiting to eat any measurable carbs until dinner or something? Um, it depends. It can be a once a day or twice a day. Yeah. yeah. But that, those fasting periods helped adapt you to bigger doses of carbs. It would seem so, yeah. yeah. Okay, so you spun out of that after three years, concluded, got a lot of data, and then went into what more, uh, what would you call it, an ancestral-aligned dietary pattern where your carb intake is still comparatively low to the average Joe? Again, I don't really know about the average Joe. I sort of always benchmark back to what I would have been doing 10 years ago. But so yeah, I've never returned to those levels of carbohydrate consumption, um, nor those types of carbohydrates, right? So I don't, you know, there are no liquid carbohydrates in my world, so I'm not drinking Gatorade and things like that. So regardless of what kind of exercise I'd be doing, it would be, you know, branched chain amino acids or water, but I really, you know, and if I needed glucose in liquid form, it would be super starch or something, which is, you know, much more of a complicated molecule. So yeah, there was, I was never back to that, that sort of way that I used to do things. Um, but, but I would say that, uh, and, and there was also certainly much more frequent, um, you know, I hate the term, but, but call it cheat day, cheat meal, whatever. I mean, I was much more liberal with, you know, when I, you know, it used to be that maybe once a year I would deviate and then it became, you know, once a month and once a week. And, um, and again, that's for some people, that's a valuable tool to have in the toolkit because it just makes it more tolerable for others. It, I think for me, it's not such a helpful tool because it, I'm pretty, I work well in absolutes. Mm. I mean, one thing this week that's actually been really fun is, as much as it's tough readapting to ketosis, I actually quite appreciate the rigor and just the binary nature of it. You know, it's it's very clear what I can and can't eat. And I opened the fridge, you know, I don't know, half an hour before you got here and like pretty much, I wanted to make some eggs. I just wanted to, you know, I finished a workout and I wanted to make some eggs and there were no eggs. And there was pretty much nothing in the fridge I could eat. You know, I wasn't going to eat all my kids' leftover macaroni and cheese and their applesauce and all of the other things in the fridge that I pretty much, you know. Greetings, my fitness-minded listeners. I want to acquaint you with the Primal Fitness Expert Certification Program, the most comprehensive home study multimedia fitness education course in the world. If you want to enhance your personal knowledge of all aspects of leading a healthy, active, fit lifestyle, this total immersion course will be life-changing. I'm the lead instructor and author of the course, and we have 14 chapters of extensive written content with over 100 accompanying videos covering topics such as general everyday movement, including micro-workouts and dynamic workstation tips, the full experience of gym-based strength training in all the different modalities, a complete presentation on all aspects of sprinting, both running and low-impact options, an assortment of high-intensity interval training and high-intensity repeat training strategies, a detailed education on the principles and practical application of aerobic endurance training, and extensive commentary, the most you will find in any publication, on all aspects and symptoms of overtraining and burnout. We even have fascinating peripheral topics like integrating nasal diaphragmatic breathing, dynamic stretching, injury prevention, and developing a peak performance mindset. It's really something, this course. We went all out for over two years with a great team to develop this 
this amazing home-based fitness education for you. And you get one-on-one expert email support and private Facebook group connection throughout your studies to ensure that you absorb everything optimally and you pass your series of exams and get certified. So go to Primal Health coach.com slash brad to enjoy a very special limited time and i'm not kidding this is a big time discount just for you 25 percent off your tuition a fantastic premium offer at primalhealthcoach.com slash brad for the most comprehensive fitness course you can ever find i would like you to know this show is sponsored by better help Therapy is a safe place to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. I have benefited extensively from online therapy. Some experts contend that you can be more vulnerable than you might be in person. What I value the most is actionable insights and specific honest feedback. I don't need someone just listening to me. I want to get some practical tips and I can definitely get that from a remote therapist. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, Maybe you're hesitant to drive across town and go into some building. Why don't you give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire, and you get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge, because getting the best fit and the most comfortable connection is very important. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash bradpod, B-R-A-D-P-O-D. That's betterhelp.com slash bradpod today to get 10% off your first month. Again, betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash bradpod and get on your way to being your best self. Otherwise, would enjoy, I guess. Yeah, and if I wasn't in ketosis, I think I would have convinced myself, hey, you just did a two-hour workout you certainly could easily eat this macaroni and cheese and not have a blood glucose spike. It would go straight into your liver and your muscles. Um, so go for it because, you know, whatever. But, but when I'm in ketosis, that, that's a bridge too far. Uh, and so the net effect is just, and, and so in many ways, ketosis becomes indirectly valuable. So I think directly it's valuable for a number of reasons, but I think indirectly it's valuable just for this sort of psychological and behavioral component for some individuals. Probably a large percentage of people have those temptations and that uh, declining willpower because you're exerting it too much on all kinds of different things, like don't don't get sidetracked on YouTube when you have to finish your emails. <laughs> and now the, the, the absolute part is, I think you're onto something. Luis Villasenor said the same thing. He said people that are struggling to start out are struggling to adhere to ketosis. He tells them to eat the same exact thing every day for as long as it takes until you're in that rhythm. Mm-hmm. And so you know you have your two eggs with avocado and a, a dollop of mayonnaise, and then you go on to your, uh, your next ordin, you know, mm-hmm. completely laid out, and you know exactly what your macros are, so it's kind of a, yep. a, a de-stress type of operation. And when I was in ketosis for those three years, the consistency amongst what I... I mean, I had a spreadsheet that listed everything I would eat. So I would just... Every day was basically some combination or permutation of something I had already eaten. And, you know, I knew exactly what the macros were of everything I was going to consume. So it was modular and it was, you know, it basically took thinking out of it. Mm -hmm. And were you doing that mainly for 
exploration, a possible application to patients, or seeing if you could get a performance edge? Um, you know, I think there were a number of reasons over those three years. Um, certainly within a few months, I, I, once I'd really, it took about three months the first time for me to really adapt aerobically. I mean, to have absolutely no deficits on um, ex- exercise, even intense exercise. And then probably it took a year or a little over a year, maybe even a year and a half if I stopped to think about it, to get even that anaerobic kick back that I'd kind of given up a bit. I mean, I, I think uh, it, for me it was a great state. You know, I just mentally felt great and, you know, you didn't really have this dysregulation of appetite. Yeah, just it just, you know, it was worth the pain. <laughs> the, the inconvenience right. maybe is a better word. Yeah. yeah. So did you get up and over your previous fitness level by virtue of having a better fat burning engine or anything of that nature? I mean, you said you struggled for the first month, you struggled for a year with the high power. I did, but there is a confounder, which is the training had also changed. So, Dang, then we can't use your thing for an exact experimental. No, no, definitely not. Um, As any athlete knows, your training is constantly evolving. So I think it's hard to, it would be odd if my training wasn't evolving over a three-year period of time and it was evolving and i'd like to believe it was getting better and so it could be that my performance was getting better because my training was getting better and my nutrition was getting better Hmm. but i don't know how to how much to attribute to each sure okay well one thing that's been uh sort of on my mind is this this seemingly um, juxtaposition of the message that metabolic flexibility and, and getting that efficiency to survive and thrive on as few calories as necessary. And, and you talked about this insulin area under the curve concept where the, the optimally minimum, uh, minimal amount of insulin you produce over a lifetime is going to be predictive of longevity. That was one of your favorite, favorite markers, if it were theoretically able to measure. Mm-hmm. And then on the other side, um, and this is uh, Dr. Tommy Wood, Nourish, Balance, Thrive. I'm doing his program and he looks at my thing and he's like, okay, here's a guy who's over 50. He's still trying to do crazy, magnificent athletic feats, break the world record, sprint, lift heavy weights, do all that stuff. My blood looks good. My body fat looks good. And he advocated for consuming like the maximum amount of nutritious calories in order to fuel my body with more more nutrient-dense foods and more more levels of all the great stuff that's in the good food. And so those seem to be at opposites, but maybe you can help explain the... Remind me what the first one is again. I'm so the sure. insulin area under the curve, right. the, you know, the idea that when you're, when you're yeah. you know, metabolically flexible, you're fat and keto adapted, you can thrive on fewer calories over the rest of your lifetime. You can produce less insulin to get well, the job but, done. But that's, that's sort of only finite, right? I mean, at some point, it, it, assuming both people have the same degree of energy expenditure both deliberate and non-deliberate, then they're both going to need the same number of calories. The question is how many are coming from inside the body versus outside the body. So early in the stages of ketosis, when a person is not in um, fat balance, when they are not weight stable, many people are losing weight. And I don't just mean the water weight. Um, Yeah, they can eat a lot less because they're eating themselves. So their exogenous requirement of calories goes down as their endogenous requirement goes up. But once they reach a steady state, either their metabolic rate must slow to to accommodate that or they're going to have to start eating more if they're no longer eating themselves as much. Um, But remember, the the, the AUC of insulin is not proportionate to the total calories you're consuming. It's more a function of the type of calories you're consuming. So 
you could have a higher AUC on a high-carbohydrate diet than you would more calories on a low-carbohydrate diet. So in other words, I guess I don't see the equivalence between those, those, those ideas. So uh, for, for back to that longevity goal, um, we're, we're going to stand by that concept of producing a minimal amount of insulin to maintain a stable body weight, recover from exercise. Right. Um, and is there any uncertainty there? Or are we just kind of... Well, there's, there's uncertainty in everything. I yeah, mean, I yeah. like that about you, man. You, <laughs> Dom D'Agostino said the same thing when I talked to him. Uh, he said, watch out for scientists who speak in absolutes because they're probably crappy. But yeah. those are the ones that get on TV. That was yeah. his quote. Um, yeah, this is, this is a, a model that, for which we can't actually test it in humans. So... Instead, we rely on a lot of proxies, which are what can you know how much of this can be tested in animals, mm. how much of this can be tested in softer outcomes in humans, meaning not the ultimate outcome, which is lifespan, but disease-based outcomes, and and then of course mechanistically, does it make sense? Um, and, and I think that you know it might be the case that you 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 could still minimize lifetime AUC while still cycling periods of anabolism and catabolism. And that is kind of my latest thinking on this topic is that you, you, you might actually um, produce the best outcome if you're cycling periods of growth and autophagy. Would you uh, apply that to say your daily eating patterns? Like our Not veins? daily, but rather to, for me, the experiment I'm doing now is it's a quarterly, so 13 week program times four, so you're four of the four thirteen week quarters in a year. And it's a week of nutritional ketosis, a week of fasting, like water only, and then a week of nutritional ketosis, and then ten weeks of time restricted feeding. And then you repeat it. So that's mm. my current hypothesis. And the time restricted feeding for me, again, this is not a program I'm advocating for any other person on the planet, but this is just the way I'm going to do this um, until I get some data back and I can adjust it. But um, the time-restricted feeding will then also be a function of the type of exercise I'm doing. So on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays when I'm lifting weights, the feeding window will be wider to accommodate uh, a more anabolic need on those days. So I would probably do a 14-hour, pardon me, a 10-hour feeding window Mm -hmm. on Monday, Wednesday, Friday versus an 8 or six-hour feeding window, Saturday, Sunday, Tuesday, Thursday, which are days when I'm doing um, aerobic and anaerobic uh, non-strength training. So you feel you have less need for fuel when you're doing the aerobic stuff? Um, No, I don't feel like I have less need for fuel. I feel like I have less potential to uh, tear down muscle. And, and, And so on the Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I want to keep the caloric intake closer to... um, the destruction of the muscle, which is happening earlier in the day for me. In an ideal world, I would lift, I would exercise before opening the feeding window. But from a practical standpoint, that's not possible. Meaning, I can't work out at four p.m. and then oh, eat dinner just because your schedule. Yeah, I have a job. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so the ideal. Why is that the ideal? Because um, I would like to be most insulin sensitive going into the largest meal. And we are naturally most insulin sensitive in the morning. And so to exercise in the morning and then eat right after is theoretically great if you could trail off your calories by the end of the day. 
But socially and practically, that's very hard to do. We, as a culture, for most of us, dinner is the important meal. Um, and, and also just the way we've structured our days, for most people, it's, it's difficult to work out at 4 or 5 p.m., you know, especially if you have responsibilities beyond yourself. So back to that uh, refrigerator sample of the kids' applesauce and the mac and cheese. Um, and, but you just finished a two-hour workout. Mm-hmm. So that's going to go right into Dr. Kate Shanahan says that the, the glycogen suitcases are open. They're going to accept the, the cargo and clothes and not going to bother that precious uh, moderation of insulin. Right. And, and again, not, if not for the fact that I was in ketosis, I would have certainly bent. Um, I still would prefer to have something that's not macaroni and cheese because that's just categorically shit. So, I mean, you know, carbs come in all different shapes and sizes and we ought to optimize around the better ones. Um, But that, again, speaks to the psychology of the default food environment. We eat what's there. So rule number one is make sure you've always got good food around so that when you are hungry, when you finish that workout, you're not having to do what I did today, which was to have nothing. Because the thing I want, in this case, the thing I wanted to eat, which was eggs, wasn't there. Now, what's going to happen when you ate nothing? You're jumping back into ketosis. You're a metabolically fit individual to begin with. So what's your body doing now when you when you? Passed? Yeah, I'm probably just breaking down muscle right now as we sit here a little quicker than I would like to be. And, you know, I'll go and find something to eat after. Um, again, from an energy requirement standpoint, I can certainly subside. I mean, I've got enough glucose and ketone floating around. Um, but... It's just the nature of this type of workout that I did today is, is one where all things equal, if I'm trying to minimize how much muscle mass I'm losing. Um, and be- maximize the benefits of the workout, I suppose? I mean, I guess it depends on... Some, it, there are so many benefits you get from a workout. There are some that are probably independent of what you eat after. Um, and there are some that are dependent on what you eat after. So, Well, now you're getting the autophagy benefits, right? If you deplete the cells during the workout and don't consume food after, you're right. Yeah, Yeah, I'm probably seeing more autophagy than had I had I not. Um, So you're you're kind of making a trade for if you go get the fuel after, right? And so next week to not eat for a whole week, Mm. that's hugely optimized around autophagy. Everything else pays a price. I will. I will shed, I, I don't know, we're going to find out. I've been weighing myself every day since I've been back in ketosis. Um, I'm probably four and a half pounds lighter than I was a week ago. Again, a lot of that's going to be water weight. And glycogen? Well, yeah, but, but glycogen is, every gram of glycogen has four grams of water. So you're calling it water weight? I'm calling it mostly yeah. water weight. So yeah. yeah, I've lost a little bit of glycogen. Your half, but, tank, half tank status. Yeah, maybe I'm half to two thirds tank, and, but it's the water that left that is the bigger issue, plus the plasma volume, independent of the intramuscular and intra, intrahepatic water in the glycogen. So, um, but you know, next week I'll probably lose six, seven pounds. I wouldn't be surprised. And, and, and some of that will certainly be lean tissue. So, and fat, I suppose. Yeah. And then you're going to ramp it back up the next week and probably put some of that weight back on just from consuming more food. And I suspect, yeah. 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 With back in, and, and that's why I kind of wanted to sandwich the fast around two keto weeks. The first one makes it easier to get in. The second one makes it easier to not go off the rails when you come out. Really? Why is that? Well, because I think truthfully, like, I'm going to be breaking the fast oh, because on a you're, Saturday. You're, you're, you're making, you, you know this is a keto week. It's not a it's, crazy pizza yeah, week. Yeah, exactly. It's I like Because I know that the first meal I'm going to have is going to be at the airport, at JFK. Yeah. 
Sabaro or what's a place called? Uh, well, no. So what I'm going <laughs> if if I yeah if 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 I were in all bets are off, you just fasted for a week. You can do anything you want. I'm pretty sure I would eat more food in that you know two hours than you can imagine, and it would be pretty bad food. But by knowing that I'm back into keto, I, I'm going to be you know I'm going to have very limited options for what I can have. So you're speaking to this um, this 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 psychological strategy of putting these. Uh, barriers and expectations up for yourself. Otherwise, you're going to go. You're going to go off the rails. Do you think that's a a common theme among uh, modern citizens here? And we we could benefit from throwing more regimentation into it. Is there is there a downside to that? Does it depend on the person? I think it depends on the person. I don't know. And if, so uh, you're this like extreme character who likes to swim to Catalina and and so forth. And also maybe go off the rails more so than the next person who might have a nice salad after a week of fasting or something. Yeah, I'm definitely not that guy. I, I, <laughs> I, my, my, everything I do, I do in excess. Like the phone call? Yeah. yeah. We should have recorded that. It was, it was, it was top notch, man. Yeah. How many times do you think I said fuck on that call? <gasps> uh, well, not as, more than the podcast right now, but we still got a while. So yeah, no, yeah. I don't, if, if I didn't stop swearing for the rest of the podcast, I wouldn't be able to catch up with that. I was super fired up. Not at Bob. It wasn't, I wasn't mad at Bob. I was bad, mad at something else, but I was venting to Bob and Bob's amazing because he lets me vent. Now, you, do you let that flow? Do you have any sort of sensitivity to regulating that? Are you, you're directing it, I imagine, in certain compartments in your life with no, no problem? Yeah, I, I, no, I do regulate it. And I realize like there are, I'm getting better at it, but I'm still far from perfect. But there are places where like, I, I wouldn't want my kids to see me doing that. Um, or receive that, of course. Well, certainly not receive that. <laughs> um, but I don't even want them to see that, actually. Right, right. Um, yeah. Because they're not probably old enough yet to understand the difference between someone who's angry at something and angry at someone. Yeah, or, or whether you were losing it, which you most clearly were not. You were very, forming a very logical and passionate argument in a, in a, you know, a regimented and focused manner. And, and I mean, you can't call that going off, literally. So right, right. But, but I think pocket. for kids that's harder. And, and, and right. again, I think, um, and then also I think there are times when I'm really angry when I realize that, so, so I think I was complete, like everything that I said in that outburst was, I stand, I stand behind completely. Like I am, I am absolutely adamant that, you know, what we just talked about was, you know, relevant and important. And that, that was a discussion that had to be had. And the, the work that will come out of this is going to be important. But there are times when you can see you're going to get angry at something that's not relevant and doesn't matter. So those are areas where I'm more interested in regulating. So for example... Highway 5, coming down here, exact, trying to be on time for my date with Peter. There you go. What the F is this? That's yeah. right. So yesterday, I, I drove up to Malibu and back. And I mean, I don't know. I mean, I don't even know how many hours I was in the car. And it's always dumb. Like when you get, you know, when the, when the traffic stops in the 405 and you realize why which is like somebody in the yeah. other lane stopped and everybody had to stop and look like that's infuriating. Yeah. But that to me is not the stuff you want to go off on, right? That's the mo that's when you want to be reflective. That's when you want to meditate. That's when you sort of want to think back about David Foster Wallace. This is water. This is the experience. So again, I don't claim to be like a master of any of this stuff. I'm still experimenting with all of these things and realizing um, the joy of getting incredibly pissed off and then taking a step back and looking at why. 
And some, sometimes I can't do it, right? So sometimes I just get really pissed off and that's the end of it. But, but half the time I can get really pissed off and go, oh, why are you really pissed off? This is all in your mind. This is just an emotion that you're experiencing that's negatively valenced and it has to do with some perceived threat that, you know, now you should start to question those assumptions. Does this really matter? Will right. this matter in five minutes? Right. Will this matter tomorrow? So, is it worth the uh, you know the cost of let's say having an altercation or what have you? Oh, or never mind that. I mean, that luckily for just your most of anger. us, that's yeah. so such a rare occurrence. But yeah, it's just like, is this worth the hypercortisolemia that I'll mm-hmm. transiently develop? Mm-hmm. And, and look, maybe by the end of this discussion, I'll be like, ah, you know what? Why did I get so pissed when I was talking to Bob? I should have just called him and said all of that stuff without like venting to him about how pissed I was. Well, that's kind of the, the maybe the, the the beauty of your connection with a close coworker is that you can unload because if the 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 subject matter that you were complaining about called on the next line, you probably wouldn't. You'd save the f word and you'd have a more reasonable discussion. Yeah, yeah. I recall being out there on the bike and uh, you know doing the road bike thing, and I didn't realize you know I'd be chit chatting and spinning along, and then if a car cut me off, I'd scream at them for years. I was I was in that hyper alert state mm-hmm. where you know I was infuriated that anyone dare risk my life. How yeah. you know, how dare they use their two thousand pound vehicle to try to uh, you know knock me off my little eighteen millimeter wheels? But um, you don't realize it till it comes out of you, I guess. Yeah, it's uh, and I share that when I used to be uh, a, a quasi serious cyclist um, that was spending so much time on there, and, and then once I had a friend that died who was killed by a motorist, I took it to a new level. It, it actually got to the point where my friends thought I was going crazy, but I wanted to carry a rifle in my back pocket, like you know how we have those pockets in the back of our jerseys. <laughs> yeah. I wanted a rifle in one of those that like I strapped around my put on the top too, maybe a little mountain. Yeah. yeah. And I was like trying to figure out if that's legal in California. Can you actually walk around? Can you have a sawed off shotgun on your bike? And I was like the next driver that mindlessly cuts me off is going to lose his rear tire. End of story. Don't care. I don't care if they veer off the road and die. Good. Get them out of the gene pool. They're done. You know I mean? I was so pissed and uh, my, one of my friends was so funny. I, mean, I forget, I, I won't even remember what he actually said when he was mocking me, but <laughs> he, he basically came up with this caricature of me being Wolverine and like how I was just gonna like slash any car that Gripping came the up. handlebars with your yeah, claws. Yeah. Uh, and I don't have a good answer for that. I mean, I, feel, I still think cyclists are justified to, to get pissed off. I mean, I, uh, if I were out there on a bike today frequently, I'd probably carry a bunch of rocks in my pocket and make sure I pinged every car that drove by with a rock. I don't know, that's probably not the answer. I mean, the answer, I don't know what the answer is, but it's definitely scary. I, I might go out on my bike once a week and just last week, uh, I was out with a buddy and, um, I mean, and, and the thing that really pisses, it's one thing when they aren't paying attention and, you know, anybody can make that mistake. It's another thing when they're very deliberate and they're trying to scare you. And this, 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 this complete knucklehead in a pickup truck, just, he had it out for us. He, we were descending on a hill where we had to make a left-hand turn. So now we're, we're going about 50, oh. 55 miles an hour down this hill, but we are back off our saddles, screeching on our brakes to try to get down to about 20 miles an hour so we can make this turn. And he is behind us and he is speeding up 
I can tell he is speeding up and getting closer and closer and closer into us with absolutely no effort. And by the way, he wasn't turning. So we're already veered off to the left to make the turn. He's coming over behind us. Not pl- I know he's not planning to turn because I, can, I, I found out after. He just, he just wanted to scare us and then go straight. And um, my buddy and I who were out there... Um, he, and he's a, he's a he's a very experienced cyclist, so you know he did Ram twice. So this oh. is a guy who he's been on a bike. It's a race a lot. across America, three thousand mile nonstop bike race. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Requires some experience. Yeah, and uh, but unlike previous, we just I didn't. Neither of us said a word after until we got through the turn, and then we looked at each other and we just kind of went, "What a dick!" Like at about that decibel level, and then just kept riding. Yeah. So so you know, I don't know. Some days you get pissed. Some days you just shake your head, but. But that stuff, if that, if that dude in the pickup truck, dude, if you're listening to this right now, I want to tell you something. You're a fucking asshole. For real. Yeah, man. Yeah, Fuck I mean, you. I, I know you're having a bad day out there, obviously. No, any, you're a anyone dick. Anyone doing that. No, but, no, you're, you're a total yeah. dick. And you know what it is? Yeah. You're just jealous that you're a fucking piece of shit in your pickup truck and these two guys are out in spandex. And if that hurts your feelings, too bad. Go to therapy, get it checked out, but don't ever come after us again, you piece of shit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my, my solution is I, I basically stopped writing just because I'm, you know, if I'm, if I'm making a, a spreadsheet of the top 20 most dangerous things I do in my life, number one is road cycling. I don't know anything that's close. I agree. To, to say number two, three, four, five, six, or seven, driving a car. I mean, that's, you know, we all accept that risk. Or yeah. getting in an airplane, uh, they had a yeah, crash. Yeah, the, the, the margin of safety on the bike is so low. And my brother, who's also transit, he had a very bad accident on his road bike that was the fault of a runner so he was going 25 miles an hour zipping down a road i mean if he could be faulted for anything it's that he was probably only two feet off the parked cars that lined the road Uh but okay so meaning he should have been thinking hey some idiot could open their door here or whatever but a runner decided somehow to just run across the street and didn't look and they hit each other head to head literally his head and her head hit um she fractured her skull. Um, his helmet, he, he by far got the better end of it. She was in much worse shape. But I mean, he's still, this is three years ago, he's still not back to normal completely. <sighs> he still has concussive symptoms. But now he mostly just rides a mountain bike every day because his view is, look, yeah, you fall more on a mountain bike for sure, but any mistake, any accident is your fault. Oh, and it's you're not going to die, most likely. I yeah, mean, my my. Yeah, you'll break crash. a wrist. Yeah. you'll break a yeah. collarbone. These things are horrible. You'll yeah. get bruised. One, it's your yeah. fault, and two, it's not fatal. But yeah, I've known. I had a very close friend who died on a bike, but then I've known of cyclists. You know, guys that were in your group that you might not have known well. And you know, in San Diego, there's like one a month. It seems. Mm-hmm. Um, that's in, so. So I agree. I, when I used to ride my bike down to La Jolla Cove when I was a swimmer mm. and do my long swims, and everybody would say, "Geez, you must be so afraid of the sharks." And I was like, actually, not at all. I'm afraid of the goddamn bike ride to La Jolla Cove. That is way scarier than the four hours I'll spend, you know, in the shark-infested Pacific Ocean. So you're doing a four-hour swim in La Jolla Cove? Oh, not now. This I mean, is back when, you're when I was preparing for Catalina. Yeah, five yeah. five-hour five was sort of my go-to swim down there, which would be uh, it's a ten-mile swim. You could, there's a nice ten-mile route you could do in the cove. Are you hitting the shore every yeah, two you and a half miles? You go uh, cove to shore, yeah. back, cove to pier, back, cove to shore, back, cove to pier, back is 10 miles. And are you getting water when you get off? Uh, are you getting up to get a drink? Do you need some nutrition after 10 miles? I mean, that's that's. So back hours. in the day when I was doing that before I was obviously as, as 
you know, knowing what I know today about nutrition, my, my main source of nutrition was something called hammer strength. You remember hammer perpetuum? Sure, you probably sure. use this stuff too. Oh yeah. I used to sell it. Yeah. yeah. So I was a hammer perpetuum guy was my go-to. And I still think of all the high carb stuff out there. It's probably the least bad. Um, it comes with so much protein and fat that it actually has a nice absorption pattern. But, um, for a 10 miler, what I would do is I would have two bottles of perpetuum on the shore and I would hopefully when you get there. Well, I sort of, I had, a, I, was, I was lucky. I never lost a bottle. I would kind of bury them in a place that I knew where I could get to them high enough back on the beach. Um, and then I would carry one. I'd wear a, like I've got a Speedo on and then you wear, a, you know what a drag suit is? Sure. Yeah, so I put a drag suit on top and then you stick a bottle in the crack oh of your ass goodness. between. That's, that's going to slow you down. It does. But Big that's, time. But that's part, of the, that's part of the drill. Yeah, because yeah. you, you you you're getting the resistance. Oh, so you don't, you don't mind the resistance? Well, it's a training I mean, swim. You want the resistance. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's why you're wearing the drag suit. And then, yeah, by putting the, uh, we called it the ass crack drink in there. <sighs> You know that would just generate like a parachute off your um, off your uh, yeah, bathing suit. Yeah, for sure, suit. for sure. Uh, I guess you needed it. It wasn't just for for kicks to slow down, but you needed that drink each hour of your swim. Yeah. yeah so basically, two on the beach and one in your butt was sort of the the routine. <laughs> That's a quote for the show right there. Two on the beach and one in your butt. Was my <laughs> nutritional advice for swimming La Jolla Cove. And if you see a floating little container of uh, perpetuum out there, you know, return it, please. <laughs> Or if all you see is the floating uh, perpetuum, there might be a swimmer attached to it that you just can't see because, you know. Now, they have, they have shark sightings out there. They do. There are, there, right? There's no question there are great whites out there. Um, there's tons of great whites in Coronado. I mean, I, talked, I used to talk to the fishermen all the time because those guys are the ones out there seeing it. And they were like, oh, yeah, like oh, once yeah. a week we see a, at least a 12-footer out here. And I'd be lying if I said there weren't days when that got in your head and you were like, you know, Especially like, you know, I remember when that swimmer got killed in Solana Beach, yeah. um, which is a beach I used to always swim at. And yeah, you, I mean, I guess you sort of think, look, is this the day? And I think the scariest part with the great whites is the attacks are so often fatal, you know. And again, not to lay blame or no blame, but, you know, the sharks aren't trying to attack a human. They think we're prey. And, and so it's sort of the whole thing's a bit tragic because they're not even getting the meal that they set out for. And Oh, um, no, they're not happy with that meal? No, not at all. They need something else? They need the seal? Need yeah, yeah, they need much more fat. Oh, okay. Unless you got a really fat swimmer, I guess, which is, can happen when you're addicted to carbs, right? You, you told, <laughs> that's right. What did you lose, like 40 pounds yeah. from, your, from your peak? But it, when, you were, when you were 40 pounds more, you were a high-performing endurance athlete, right? Yes, although I think it's very important to put that in context. You know, to be a high performance, first of all, I don't think I've ever been a high performance athlete in anything in my life. When you uh, think if you made it, it to shore uh, from Catalina to, to San Pedro, that's a high performance. I would well, say that's a high five it's, it's, at the minimum. You know, it's, it's all relative. I mean, I think it's, uh, that's more a feat of sort of stamina and mental toughness. Than it is. I mean, to me, the the you know the people who are setting the records doing that, who are you know ca- crossing the Catalina Channel in eight hours, you know, these are people who are that's super high. It's three miles an hour. Or something. Uh, yeah, it's a little flying. less. It's about two point six, two point yeah. seven miles an hour. Yeah, and 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 again, generally speaking, the people who are setting you know these eight hour times are both the best swimmers and they get the right day. And the right day means you generally get a little push off the island, so you got a little bit of a a tail current, but your your ground speed would still be about two and a half knots, maybe maybe two point three, two point four knots, which is staggering. 
I'm pleased to present BRAD grass-fed whey protein isolate superfuel, the absolute highest quality all-natural protein supplement infused with creatine that delivers everything you need to optimize your appetite for fat loss, recover quickly from workouts, and build and maintain lean muscle mass, the single most important attribute for aging gracefully. Our protein comes directly from small family farms in America's dairy land of Wisconsin. It's cold processed and micro filtered for maximum bioavailability and digestibility. So please don't mess with the many cheap commodity protein supplements that are ineffective, inferior, less pure, and often contain junk sweeteners, especially the plant-based offerings that are vastly less bioavailable than the gold standard of protein supplements that's whey protein isolate. Whether you're in your peak athletic years looking to grow and recover or in the older age groups trying to delay aging and decline, whey and creatine are widely agreed to be the most critical and effective supplements to take for the rest of your life. You can easily stir the superfuel in water or make a delicious smoothie every day. I'm certain that you're going to love the pleasant, light, natural vanilla bean and cocoa bean flavors. So try some on Amazon today. It's a huge hit with dozens of five-star reviews. Or you can order direct from bradnutrition.com with our buy three, get one free, and make the super fuel a centerpiece of your daily routine. I'm so excited to introduce you to Paluva. This is a new zero-drop minimalist shoe with the distinctive five-toe design from my main man, Mark Sisson. Paluvas give you the most authentic barefoot-style experience, but with sufficient cushioning so you can use them for all manner of daily movement, especially walking and many other fitness and athletic activities. Paluvas are also incredibly stylish, so you get a barefoot shoe that you're not embarrassed to wear around in daily life. It's been so cool to see the popularity of minimalist shoes grow over the recent years, but Paluvas are a step ahead of every other zero-drop wide-box shoe because of the critical feature of individual five-toe articulation, a separate slot for each of your toes. This allows for correct dynamic movement of the foot through the walking or running stride, which is impossible when your toes are encased into a single box, even a wide box. Well, you might know that minimalist shoes have faced controversy in recent years for causing injuries from inappropriate use. So here is the big picture mission. We want to get you walking in paluvas, living in your paluvas, going barefoot in your home or other safe areas as often as possible. Go ahead and use your specialized cushiony running shoes or your basketball shoes, work boots, high heels, things that you want to wear when you want to wear them, but wear your Paluvas as much as possible to reawaken the natural functionality of the human foot to stand, walk, run, and perform. Do you want to try a pair? I'm certain that when you put them on and walk around, you are going to quickly realize that these are the most comfortable, natural shoes that you've ever worn. They are designed to feel like you're, quote, walking barefoot on a putting green. Please visit paluva.com, that's P-E-L-U-V-A, and use the code BRADPODCAST and get 10% off your first pair. Paluvas, let your feet be feet. Yeah, go try that in one length of the pool.
if you're a competent swimmer and see how fast that is. It's like the marathon guys going, oh, 202, a new record. Wow, that sounds fast. And then you go to the you running You realize track. that you have to run a 440 yeah. or something. Yeah, you run a 71 on a, on, a, on a 400 meter track and see how that feels. And then imagine doing that from here to downtown San Diego or whatever your reference point is. It's, it's stunning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What is that, Peter? Is that like the genetics are off of the, the For the marathon runners? And, and the person who, you know, who was it, Susie Maroney that swam to Cuba in record time or these people that go off the, off the charts with, uh, you know, unheard of performances? You know, I think, um, I, I, I mean, yeah, that's a whole interesting and separate discussion. I, I think uh, there are people who are, it's a, it's a right combination. It's everything has to line up. So if you talk about the marathon runners, um, I'm sure, I don't know if you've ever seen the documentary Breaking 2. So it's a documentary about this. It's kind of a Nike stunt, actually. Oh, it's, yeah, yeah. But, but it's, it's basically Nike propaganda, but, um, which is fine because I like Nike and I see oh, yeah, they, they orchestrated the, yeah, 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 the yeah, sub yeah. two hour marathon attempt on the, on the, on the car tra- racing track yeah, on Monza. perfect conditions. That's yeah. right. But what I found interesting about it is it also is a great way for people who aren't interested in marathon to at least, you know, like if you're willing to spend 90 minutes watching this documentary, you'll also get a sense of how special these guys are, the athletes and how built for purpose they are. Because if you really wanted to build the perfect runner, what would they look like? They would have uh, an enormous cardiovascular and cardiopulmonary and cardiorespiratory capacity. So they'd have these relatively large thoraxes. Um, They'd have relatively large quads, glutes, and hams, and then nothing else, right? From the the knee down, they should be as small as possible because you don't want to have to carry that weight swinging back and forth like a pendulum. And obviously the arms should be as small as possible. The waist hips should be as small as possible. And they're, so their power to weight, weight ratio should be very high. And, and then you want to introduce form. You want to know the people that can transmit the most of their weight, the most of their force directly into an upward motion because speed is by how high you go, not how, I mean, how far you go is a function of how high you go, right? Like, so when you're a running long jumper, it's, you're, when you're running down the thing, you're trying to optimize how high you jump because the goal, the high, the higher you get, the longer hang time you get to allow your translational horizontal velocity to get you far. Right. It's the, it's the force into the ground. Like Usain Bolt generates 1000 pounds of force with each stride. And yeah, that's Usain why he can Bolt, go eight feet Usain with Bolt each stride. Usain Bolt generates more downward force than any sprinter ever recorded. Right. So it's, people say he is able to um, run so fast because his legs are longer than everybody else. That's not true. It's because of what you said. It's because he hits the ground so hard that he can he gets more air time to make the leap between each step. Yeah, also interesting about the turnover concept. There was a big article in Sports Illustrated years ago where even the average casual middle school soccer player has the same turnover rate. Like they, they turn their legs over at 0.17, just like a world-class sprinter. So it's all about the, the force off it's the ground, total not force. the turnover. It's total force to mass, absolutely. Ryan Flaherty, who I've talked about many times on different podcasts and is a good friend, actually up, works at Nike now. I mean, he, he and a couple of other really interesting guys, a guy that I don't know, but his name, I believe his name is Owen Anderson, who's actually mm-hmm. probably you know, the godfather of all this stuff. I mean, these guys have really kind of codified the science of speed. And, and again, that doesn't just mean sprinting. That applies to the marathoner as well. It's the same concept. So with the swimming, the, the swimming's swimming a bit harder. Are, so swimming, yeah. I, I think swimming is different. I think swimming, I think the best swimmers are not the ones that are doing the best force to mass. Because 
water and um, air obviously have this one subtle difference, <laughs> which is density. Uh, so in running, the speed is not really fast enough that aerodynamics matters that much. Um, now, that said, at the world's elite level, it does. And that's why in breaking two, they had pacers. So you absolutely want to have, in fact, they actually, I think they had like a car in front of them with a windshield. So they they were sort of going out of their way. But even a pacer will make a difference both from a the- A pacer breaking the wind correct, for you behind. So correct. The, the key guy who's trying to win is, is not fighting- Is never wind. facing the wind. Yeah. The faster you go, the more relevant that becomes. So in- if you, the next level up is cycling. How much does it matter? It matters a whole heck of a lot. Sport. And it certainly matters once you're above 25 miles an hour. That seems to be mathematically about the cutoff in cycling. So if you're, if you're an athlete listening to this who's training for an Ironman and you really believe that you're going to be able to average 21 or 22 miles an hour, which is a res- totally respectable speed for 112 miles, um, save yourself the money and don't get a disc wheel. Because the disc wheel doesn't, it comes with at a higher cost than benefit at a speed of 22 miles an hour. Because the cost, because it, it does cost you weight and crosswind. Mm. It's helping you when the wind is straight in front of you or straight behind you. But at 22 miles an hour, you're not quite fast enough to get the um, aero savings front to back at the cost of the weight, which will punish you on every hill, and the crosswind where it'll punish you. And you're, so it, you're not going to get like a sailboat effect from a, a crosswind hitting your disc wheel. We always thought that, or wondered that, I guess. Uh, probably not, right? Because like, how are you? Unlike the sailboat, you don't have a rudder, right? So it's the like, sailboat's actually going and the at sailboat, an angle. And this, exactly, the sailboat doesn't jib. Like the sailboat right. jibs, the, the cyclist doesn't. So yeah. now I think the crosswind is hurting you. Oh. Um, but at a certain speed, so when you look at the world's best. You know, these are guys who are going to hold 24, 25, 26 miles an hour, maybe even more at 112 miles. Yeah, they're getting the benefit of the disc wheel. Um, And then, of course, once you get into like time trialing for shorter distances where guys are going 30 miles an hour or faster, then you're going to always make a trade off in favor of aero. In fact, the Mm -hmm. aero position itself is a compromised position for power output. You're occluding your femoral vessels, you are impeding venous return to the heart. My power output in an aero position was consistently 30 watts lower than when I was sitting up. Meaning oh, my- in, in a stationary setting, that's right. you can measure your watts. For those not super familiar with cycling, you can measure how much power you're putting into the pedals. And so when you sit up, you put out more power. That's, Absolutely. So yeah. when we would do an FTP test, sitting up, meaning cl- climbing is the easiest way to do a power test. So if you find a hill- it's relatively, you know, you find a 6% grade hill for a few miles and do 20 minutes, you know, sitting up, cranking for 20 minutes. You take that average wattage, you multiply it by about 0.9. That's called your functional threshold power directionally. Mm. You do the same test on a flat with yourself in an arrow position. You'll be lucky if you could be within 30 watts of that because of this compromise. So the question is, if you're doing a time trial, why would you still go into an aero position because despite the fact that you put out less power, the benefit on aerodynamics is so great. And then you go even further. Once you get into formula one, Hmm. aerodynamics is everything. It's one of the single most important pieces of what enables those cars to go so fast. Um, And why, for example, you'll see so much slingshotting Hmm. where, you know, a guy comes behind another guy and 
he can just generate so much more speed to go past that guy because he's been in the slipstream of the car in front of him. Okay, so why did I go off on that long thing? Because you like race driving, I guess. That's probably no, why. Tell me about that. You, are you a racer? Well, I want to go like back a, to answer your swimming yeah, question. Yeah. So, so the swimming question is, in swimming now, it's a totally different equation. So in swimming, density of the fluid, in this case, water, not air. Air is a fluid. But in this case, uh, the density of water is so much greater than the density of air that pretty much everything in swimming comes down to avoiding drag. Technique. So the, the best technique. swimmers in the world are not the, you know, not necessarily the longest or the f- least fat or the most muscular or whatever, whatever. Not, not uh, probably the lowest correlation with VO two max in swimming versus running and cycling. And even there, the correlation is not as high as people think. By the way, VO two max is not as highly correlated mm-hmm. as PVO two max or VVO two max. Those are where that's what really predicts the winners. But in, sight, in swimming, none of that stuff matters nearly as much as can you put your body in the shape of a vessel that minimizes drag. And I think some of those people have those uh, physical attributes that kick them over the top, like Michael Phelps with his double-jointed uh, size 14 flipper feet and the shoulders that were hyper-flexible. But I, I, I feel like in and general... And in those, those are two examples of things that both that both minimize drag, but also maximize thrust. Right. So with, to be able to put your, for a swimmer that can straighten their ankles completely, um, yes, you, you, you basically have a kick that's going to lead to a much more forward propulsive behavior. Like if you did an experiment, put yourself on a, a, a flutter board and put your ankles at 90 degrees, so put no dorsiflexion into it, and, um, or no plantar flexion, sorry, mm-hmm. and then you kicked you'd actually go backwards <laughs> so it's like you have negative like thrust a, at that point so backward so, paddle wheel or yeah, something exactly yeah. so the difference between being at 90 degrees and 180 degrees is everything hmm. and obviously nobody's going to be kicking at 90 but let's say the average person's kicking at 160 degrees and there's somebody that can kick at 175 degrees that's an enormous advantage and then the elbow and shoulder flexibility and it's really not shoulder it's actually scapular flexibility hmm. that allows you to keep the elbow as high as possible in the catch so mm-hmm. that you can hold the maximum amount of water on the vertical part of your arm. But there again, thrust and drag avoidance are everything in swimming. And then the other component, which I sometimes feel is undervalued, is the smart training and not overtraining and getting the mind right so you can handle the pressure. And I think these, in general, like let's say the NCAA athletic arena where they take these distance runners that are great champions in high school or the, the age group swimming ranks are filled with kids that burnt out when they were 14 instead of mm-hmm. 23 with gold medals around their neck. And so that part's a little disturbing because it's sort of a survival of the fittest in terms of the how much work you can survive without falling apart. Yeah. Even if you did have the great scapula and the, even the work ethic is sort of irrelevant if you keep getting uh, sore throats because something, something's going and on. I, I almost separate those two, and I agree. They're both as important. I mean, you... You can't get to the level of being the best if you don't have um, independently, I think, this mental toughness and, and then also the work ethic to sort of, you know, get it, get it done when, you know, you don't always want to. So the mental toughness amazes me. I mean, that's, yeah. I've, I've seen Phelps race so many times. Um, and I think for those of us who like swimming, um, the fact that we could have been around during the Phelps era to have watched him, you know, I used to go and like 
watch his practices in person oh, as really? many times. Wow. Oh, yeah, 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 many times. Um, but, you know, there was, there was just an amazing generation of swimmers too. I mean, you know, Lochte's a guy who I think would be much more well-known. I mean, he's pretty well-known both for his swimming exploits and non-swimming exploits. But I think most people don't realize how good a swimmer Lochte was. It's just he was, you know, in the shadow of the greatest swimmer of all time. It's sort of like you probably would have never heard of Affirmed if he was around when Secretariat was around. Phil Mickelson, your neighbor, would be, you know, one of the greatest of all time, but he, he, he had a lot of, he has a lot of second places and uh, yep. Tiger took that over. But yeah, I think Phelps and then seeing Usain Bolt do what he did and that consistency of coming back year after year is something that's once in a lifetime. Same with Tiger Woods and that's something to be appreciated. I think those are the greatest examples that we'll, we'll see for, for many, many years that performing at that highest level. I think it's incredible. And again, because I don't play golf, I probably have less of an appreciation for the greatness of, you know, Mickelson or one of these guys. Um, but yeah, as a swimmer, I could go and watch Phelps do something and, and look at the met, like you can geek out on the metrics, right? Like look at the stroke rate, look at the distance per stroke, look at the turnover, look at X, look at Y, look at Z. And it's like, Wow. Yeah, I swam with a guy in Sacramento named Jeff Float, and he was the Olympic gold medalist in 1984, probably the most apt named swimmer of all time, and also the first uh, hearing impaired gold medalist in the in the proper Olympics. Uh, and he he would get into the practice pool, 25 yard pool, and his stroke uh, his stroke. Uh, how count was nine strokes. Yeah. And so for reference, like a really good swimmer is getting to that wall in what, 14, 15, yep. something like that. You know, I was trying to go down from 18 to 17 and really work hard on extending. And, and, and most people who don't know how to swim would be 25 sure. strokes. Yeah. So he's across the pool in nine strokes. And so if you watch from the deck, it looks like he's cruising. Mm-hmm. And I remember my first workout with him, I was kind of nervous. Sorry, I'm slipping with a gold medalist. Hey man, can I jump in on your workout? Sure, sure. I'm going to warm up a little and then we'll do some hundreds. And so I looked over in his lane and he was just warming up and we, he kept warming up. Usually you warm up what, 500, 700 at the most. He kept warming up, kept warming up. And I'm finally like stopped. Like, when are we going to start the bloody set? And he was, he was halfway through his hundreds, but his, his swim is so gentle. Yeah. He's not splashing water and he's going at this, this relaxed stroke rate. And, uh, you know, he was running, he was hitting double O, like a very fast hundred pace, just with, it's seemingly a warm up swim. Very often the best at these things are also the most beautiful to watch. That's not always the case. Um, In cycling, I mean, I've always found Chris Froome a little awkward to look at. Like I don't, he doesn't look graceful, but he's, you know, head and shoulders above everybody else. So, you know, when it comes to putting out you know, watts per kilo, Froome is going to do it better than anybody else. And uh, even if it doesn't look great. Um, but in swimming, the only example I can think of of someone who really looked like they were struggling but was still going faster than everybody else was um, uh, Dolan, uh, who was the, God, he won. Tom Dolan, he yeah. was like a 50 guy. No, he was, a, well, his real claim to fame was the 400 IM. He oh, okay. won two consecutive oh, yeah, yeah. gold medals in the 400 IM. So he won... 96 and 2400 IM. He was a Michigan guy. And um, I, I never knew him. I've never seen him swim except on video. But it's like, oh my God, he just didn't look like a fraction of, you know, the grace. But I mean, he was a killer. Doing something right under yeah, the water. For yeah. sure. So I'm big on this kick of keeping athletic goals going throughout life and making them age appropriate and lifestyle appropriate. 
Um, you had your you had your day for doing your five hour training swims and your uh, attempts to cross the channel. What are you doing these days, or what do you envision as future goals to keep it keep it balanced with all the busy work you're doing? Um, I I got to tell you, I don't really um, have many performance goals. I mean, my first goal is always to show up and do the workout. So I, my first goal is completion is, 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 you know, is the, what do you call it? The attendance goal. Yeah. So don't miss a workout ever. Mm. Really ever. Um, huh? I mean, I'm going to, but that's the goal. Yeah. Like that, wow. that's the, that's the first order term is make sure you hit every workout, even if you don't feel like it, even if you have to modify it a little bit. Um, like this week I got on my trainer to ride on Tuesday and I couldn't believe how bad I felt. And I was like, okay, well you got two choices. You can just stop five minutes in or you can, do it, but lower the, like, lower the power targets that you, because, you know, I'm doing this thing on trainer road, so it's, you know, it's sort of spitting out numbers and you're on an erg that's, that's generating the, telling you, forcing you to generate a certain amount of power. So I just lowered it, but I, you know, still got through the workout. And, and uh, today, even today, like, it would have been incredibly convenient to have skipped the workout because there was just too many things that had to get done. And I got home so late yesterday and I didn't get up as early as I wanted to this morning and I was, you know, 47 goddamn emails that needed to be responded to in 10 minutes and blah, 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 blah. So I was like, and also I didn't feel great. You know, this, the keto thing still feels really hmm. pretty, I don't feel great. So, but I was like, look, you got to go and you got to do it. And then even my first exercise after my, I have a very long warm up actually on a day like today. I spend uh, once a week, I do a very long, like I do an hour to 90 minute warm up. It's much more about like it's sort of a physical therapy type warm up before I get into the heavy stuff. Hmm. And today's first thing out of the gate was back squats. And I just knew it just wasn't feeling right. You know, somehow the drive back and forth yesterday up to LA, mm. I'm on my ass all day yesterday, even while I'm up there, I'm sitting. I just felt my QLs were very tight. And so, you know, I warm up with the bar, 95 pounds, 135 pounds, 175, 185 pounds or whatever. Didn't feel good. I was like, that's it, we're done. So, so but I didn't can the workout. Mm. I just called an audible. I said, okay, we're going to do split squats, curtsy squats, a whole bunch of much lighter things um, to do it. So, so really that's my most important goal is just show up, don't get hurt. It's okay to call audibles. Yeah. Right. Um, as far as performance goes, I'm, I'm actually pretty happy being a little bit back on the bike. I'm a little bummed at how unfit I am. I think it speaks to the specificity of what I used to do and what people used to, or what people do who take this sport seriously. Um, I'm amazed at how slowly I'm adding watts to my FTP. Which in <laughs> cycling is kind of the only thing you are really metric. You know, it's your it's your metric, and I'm blown away. I mean, I think even since this from the spring until now, I mean, maybe I'm ten watts higher. That's pathetic. Like that's you know, I should be like thirty watts higher, given how far I am below. Because remember, it's easy to gain fitness you once had versus mm. building off being at your best, which mm. I'm nowhere near. Um, I mean, I have some strength goals, you know, there's certain, there's certain lifts I want to be able to hit on my deadlift. Um, and I think there are certain silly things that I want to be able to do again that I've done historically, but through injuries have had a hard time. I can't tear phone books anymore. Which could at one point. I, I when could, they had phone books, now they don't have any. So yeah, I okay. wish that was the only reason I couldn't. No, I just, I, uh, my grip strength has declined after an elbow injury. Mm. And so the last time I tried to tear a phone book, I couldn't do it. And I was, you know, I mean, since college, I've been tearing phone books. Wow. 
So that really bums me out, not because I care about tearing phone books, but because it makes me realize, wow, I've lost that much grip strength. Um, and then I, you know, my, my goals in a race car, I have goals in archery. And while those are probably less physically demanding than kind of the cycling swimming type of goals I had, they're still very technical and um, equally enjoyable for me as far as pursuing. So what's the race car all about? Um, you mean, meaning like what, what are the goals or why do yeah, I care? What kind, of, what kind of racing do you do? Um, I do, I mean, most of the work that we do is actually in a simulator just based on cost and time. So the simulator's in the next room. Um, And then when it comes to cars, I mean, any, I I like all cars. I I like anything that's a built for purpose race car. Those are the most fun cars. So street cars are not that much fun to drive on race tracks because they're not really built for purpose. But, you know, even like a little tiny Miata that's all specced out for racing, even though it's, you know, a very low powered car, I mean, they're still incredibly fun to drive on race tracks. Um, you know, the, the spec class of BMWs, the E30s, the E46s. Um, I, I love the formula cars because just the performance is outstanding. You now generate this downforce through the aerodynamics of the car and you can go through corners at speeds you've never imagined possible. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's, that's what that's all about. Well, man, you're, you're living a fast life. You always got something going on. I, I appreciate that about you. I think it kind of blends together like these, these hobbies and passions. You know, they say that you need to nurture those to uh, maximize your ability in your career and to have those outlets. You feel like that's a good, a good blend for you that you're always finding something, archery, what have you? I think so. I mean, I think I just, uh, um, people have different needs, right? You know, there's like a hierarchy of needs, but I think that for many people, and certainly for me, mastery is a need. The journey, like the journey of getting better at something is very important. And that's probably why when I stopped um, competitively doing anything athletically, swimming or cycling or even boxing, um, it was very hard to find pleasure out of those activities recreationally. <laughs> because there's nothing, I'm not, I'm so far below where I was. Like, so when, when you know, when I was time trialing, or swimming and doing so in, as competitively, every month you're trying to get a little bit better. Each season you're trying to get a little bit better. You've got goals and you're working towards them. But now for me to get on my bike, it's horror. I mean, it's a joke, right? I'm so bad. Like there's, it's hard for me to find the mastery in it. There's still joy in it at some level, but there's no mastery. So that's why turning to other things like driving a race car or archery where you're starting at ground zero, there's incredible pleasure in getting better at something and learning a skill that you don't monotonically improve in, but you, you know, you'll take some steps forward. You'll take some, some steps backwards. You know what good looks like because you can see it modeled in others. And, uh, you know, you look back over the course of a year and you realize, wow, I've made progress. And I, I don't know, for some reason, I just think that's important. Yeah, I feel the same and keep it, keeping it fresh. It might be a personality attribute because I know buddies of mine that I raced with on the pro circuit starting 30 years ago and they're still going into the amateur ranks and now they're winning the 50 plus division. And, you know, people ask me all the time. It's like the first question I get. Oh, you, you, you race pro for nine years. That's great. Do you, do you still do the races for fun? And I go, no. And that's it. <laughs> why yeah. and, why and, would I, I can't even imagine wanting to after, you know, going, going all out in something. Do you want to go back to, to medical school just for fun? I mean, <laughs> well, but you know, your guys who are still 
race in the over 50, I think in many ways that's still another form of mastery. They're in an absolute sense, they're not getting better, but on an age adjusted basis, perhaps potentially they're still seeing those, those gains and, and maybe for them, um, that's scratching the same itch. Yeah. The podium's there for everybody, right? There's a, there's age divisions for a reason. So, and keep up the good work with your career, man. We appreciate you so much. I know Mark Sisson and I drove down here, what was it now, um, a year and a half ago, because we had this assignment to write the Keto Reset Diet, and we knew a little bit about keto, and we said, what should we do now? We have to turn this book in, and we had a great time with you there at the whiteboard, and you explained everything to us. It was a huge uh, a huge part of the uh, the operation, so... That was that was good to meet you there, and now catch up and find out that you're in the podcast game. So how do we um, how do we subscribe? What's the show's going to be about? What's your tone and so forth? So it's kind of um, so the name of the the podcast is called the Drive, and so you can find it. Do you have like graph uh, you know, background uh, you know show tunes where you have the, the yeah, motor we, revving we, up? We, we don't we don't have driving music, um, which maybe we should. Um, and you can find it in all the usual spots on on iTunes and such, but. The thing that we're doing as an experiment is putting a stupid amount of work into the show notes. Now that again, that may turn out to be not a good use of it's resources. Like Rhonda Patrick style. Um, she, well, she does Rhonda does it on the podcasts. screen. Yeah, yeah. Rhonda's are amazing because she's doing this killer job of the video. We're not even going down that path yet. But if you look at the website, if you look at petertiamd.com forward slash podcast, you'll see all the podcasts and you'll see 10 pages worth of like every detail on everything that we talk about with a hyperlink to this and a description of this and all those things. So the feedback so far has been that people have never seen show notes like them and they really love them. Um, and again, if, if it makes sense, we'll continue to do that because I, I think it makes it, um, it allows people to get more out of it. Um, hoping to probably just post or uh, put one up every single Monday. And, um, you know, we've got enough in the pipeline that'll, that we, we have our six months basically worth. So we'll get to the end of the year and then decide if we're, we're going to continue it. Um, and the format seems to be kind of long form, you know, podcast. It's sort of like, uh, you know, I like what Tim does. I like what Joe Rogan does. I like what people, do. I like when people just say, you know, we're going to go where we go Get and it's going to be off the road, asshole, or I'll, I'll kill you next time. Oh, oh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I like saying that too. Um, we're going to, we're going to do extensive show notes then to honor you. I mean, I have that same vision of really providing a helpful written content cause I'm a writer and you should see the descriptions of my shows go on and on. I'm like, well, I got to stop. I got to go do my, my other, you know, finishing a book, but, um, we'll, we'll do kick-ass show notes and I'm going to find the driver of that pickup truck that was going down that hill and, and, and call him out. We'll, we'll find him. I want, I want, I wish I could remember his, uh, his, his, the color of his truck and his license plate. You, you talked about the desire to have a rifle strapped to your bike, uh, as, as one, did we talk about it on the air or off the air? I can't remember, but, um, maybe you should get air. like, I mean, you could get a, a body cam, right? Like a, what, what do you call the thing on top of your like head? The GoPro. GoPro. Yeah. It just, any car cuts you off, you get their license plate and we go to town We go straight to the police station. Olivia, what are you doing here? I love if it. If you listen to the we're, first we're, show, we're, we're on the air here. The first show on the Drive podcast, this young lady who just walked in, would you say hello to our, our fans out there? Hi, guys. And can you tell them the name of this podcast? Get Over Yourself. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Get Over Yourself podcast. For Olivia and Peter Atia, this is Brad Kearns. Have a nice day. Hey, do you want to hear an advertisement? 
If I sing it, would that be a little more palatable? I know that we sometimes get annoyed listening to ads on podcasts. Go ahead and hit the plus 15 or the plus 30 second button if you don't want to hear this. But I've also been exposed to some cool products and services when I listen to ads on certain podcasts. So once in a while, or more than that, I'm going to talk about stuff that I really use and enjoy and completely support. No BS. I absolutely promise that to you. And here's one thing I'd like to talk about which are the awesome online multimedia educational courses that I created and host at Primal Blueprint. You can learn all about them, primalblueprint.com, and click on the Courses button, especially the brand new 21-Day Primal Reset. And this is kind of our entry point into turning around your diet and your lifestyle, getting healthy escaping from the disastrous condition of carbohydrate dependency that plagues us in modern life and becoming fat adapted, but you're led step by step with a series of videos every single day with objectives for 21 days to clean up your diet, ditch those bad foods, those grains, sugars, and refined vegetable oils, get your exercise programmed, optimized, and believe me, it's not that difficult. It doesn't take that much time. A five-minute workout can deliver awesome benefits. And I'll also take you through all the complimentary lifestyle practices, like getting your sleep habits dialed in. It's a lot of fun. I guide you every step of the way with great video content. That's just one of the courses. We also have the one for endurance athletes, all about the world's leading experts and everything from the Primal Endurance book brought to life. And of course, the Keto Reset, the New York Times bestselling book about going keto if you've already built some momentum with a low-carb diet. Just go over there and check it out. And because you're listening to this ad, I'm going to give you a super-duper top-secret 20% discount off of your enrollment on any of those courses, and that is the code Brad 20. Tell your friends, go for it. Make some changes in life. Do it the right way with complete guidance from me. If you're sick of my voice from the podcast, maybe it's time to switch over to video. Just visit the homepage at bradkearns.com, scroll through all that speed golf stuff, and you'll see wonderful presentations for all the video courses, including exciting trailer videos. You can click right over to the course, use that discount code BRAD20 for 20% off your enrollment. Thank you for listening to this lengthy ad, and I appreciate you listening to this show also. 